short story today from one of the biographies of Christ. It's going to be on page 721 of the, these Bibles, so you can be turning there. We'll get to it here in a few minutes. Um, I, I'm a kind of a people watcher, and I like, uh, I have a tendency to enjoy um, probably more than most, like witnessing or being a part of awkward or, you know, potentially volatile situations. I actually enjoy like, ooh, what's going to happen here? Um, whether I'm involved or not, I'm just kind of... And I think most of us do because pretty much every movie that is entertaining or every TV show or every joke that you tell involves like potentially awkward or socially volatile situations. And I was trying to think of like what, what might be the most tense scene in cinema history when it comes to like uh, a group of people being in a room together that would normally not be hanging out together and you're thinking... This is going to just going to be really awkward, and I'm going to be sensing the tension, or this is not going to end well. This is going to be terrible. And I couldn't help but go with Quentin Tarantino and Glorious Bastards. Um, I know, such a holy reference, but I'm a Tarantino fan. And if you've been a part of Restore at all, it's been a while since I've referenced Tarantino. So here you go. And there's this scene in the movie where uh, a group of allied soldiers, uh, a British guy and some Americans and a, and a German guy who's basically switch sides and become part of the allies. They, they are um, kind of underground subversive uh, agents and they're trying to infiltrate, and this is a totally fictitious story, but they're trying to infiltrate the German army and just kind of bring everything down from like this subversive level. And they dress up as German officers and they go in to this German bar um, or this bar where a lot of German officers are hanging out and things get really awkward because a German officer who outranks all of them, who they have these uniforms on, and he outranks them, he comes over, he sits down with them, and he starts asking all kinds of questions and, and hanging out. They start playing games, and it, the tension is just ratcheting up because you're like, at some point, he's going to figure out they're not real. Like, they're posing as German soldiers, and the tension just rises and rises. You know Tarantino, he just drags the scene out. It could be like a three-minute scene. It's like a 30-minute scene or something, and they just dialogue, building up, tension building up, and spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. All right, it goes badly. Uh, but that, and there's a scene from the movie, a uh, little bit, a, a snippet of Michael Fassbender and uh, this other guy, I don't know who the actor is, but it's a really great scene. And um, typically, you know, when people who are under most circumstances would never want to be around each other, at best, it's going to be socially awkward. At worst, um, it's going to get violent. Um, socially awkward example would be like Ann Coulter deciding to attend the Comedy Central roast of Rob Lowe. Did anybody see that? Like a snippet? I mean, you talk about an easy target for roasters. I, I'm, I would, if I were her, I would have never walked into that room because they, it was like dogs to a bone. All right, when they saw Ann Coulter being a part of this and. It's actually really uncomfortable, uh, all, all the stuff they said about her. And I'm not a really big fan of roasts to begin with. So very socially awkward. And then at worst, if you get enemies together uh, in the same room, who knows what's going to happen because it could, it could end in a really violent situation. Uh, that's normal. When you hang out with, you spend, when you run into, you ever run into like an enemy or someone you have like major tension with or there's a grudge there and it's like an accidental run-in, it it's awkward. And normally, those things, what's normal is those don't end well. There's either like an abrupt like, okay, I just want to get away from this person, or things might get like verbally or physically violent, except if Jesus is involved. If he gets involved, 
miraculous stuff can happen. Weird, good, powerful, loving things can begin to occur when Jesus is interjected into this group that could be, you know, normally would never want to be together under any circumstance. And that's where we're going to go today is seeing when Jesus gets thrown into the mix, miracles happen, common ground is found, the lonely and the rejected are loved, defensiveness decreases, healing can occur, friendship is formed, all kinds of good stuff happens. So we're going to pick up this story. We're going to read this uh, kind of like Jesus, a sinful woman, and a Pharisee hanging out at dinner one night. And uh, it's in Luke 7. It's on page 721. And I'm going to read verses 41. Uh, actually, I'm going to read more than that. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 36. And we're going to read about 10 verses or so here. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This is what he's thinking. And then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. And he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. Do you not give me any water for my feet? But she, get, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. So there's a story there, and then there's a parable in the midst of that. And we're doing this series called Parables, which is like an earthly story that carries um, deep spiritual truth. And we're going to continue that throughout September so I want you to note um, the intimacy and transparency, this opportunity uh, for relational connection with the Pharisee and this woman, culturally. This woman, Jesus, and this Pharisee would never be together. Um, and they happen to find themselves together. And when you're investigate, investigating Christ or fully following him, you're going to find yourself in circumstances and situations that you had never imagined you would be a part of. If you... And if you follow Christ, that's going to happen. Like, I would have never imagined doing this or being involved in this or saying that to a person or helping this person. Your level of dealing with these types of situations will increase as you pursue Jesus. And it will never be comfortable. It will, it, it, maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe, but most of the time you will think, I don't really feel like doing that. That's kind of like goes, you know, par for the course with following Christ is... I'm not sure I want to do what you're telling me to do. All right, it's this whole obeying him before understanding is a big part of our faith. It's a big part of the mystery of following Jesus. And what's interesting in this story 
is it'd be really f- easy for us as westernized people to identify an enemy in this story, like a bad guy, because we want to know where the bad guy is. Like, where's the bad guy? Where's the protagonist and the antagonist? But there's no bad guy in the story because we can each relate to every person a- at the table. We can relate to the Pharisee, we can relate to the sinful woman, and we can relate to Jesus. And it might be a season where you relate to that person, or it might be multiple times throughout your day, depending on the context. Depending on the sinful text, you might act and feel like the Pharisee. Depending on the context, you might feel like the sinful woman. And depending on the context, you might feel like Jesus. And so we're going to look at each individual, how we can relate to them, and what, what is God saying to us as we read this story and can relate to the characters, because there is no bad guy. There is only us, humanity, involved in these layered and textures of Scripture. So let's start with the Pharisee. Um, Pharisees were known for being pragmatic, advanced, highly regarded, extremely educated. Most of the Pharisees had uh, the the, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. That's that's quite an accomplishment to have that memorized. Uh, Many of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. Highly educated. They had strong opinions formed, and they had perceived truth that was formed. The life paradigm that they had, had been uh, formed, and the only one they believed capable of adding to it or changing that paradigm was the Pharisee, was myself. Like, I'm the smartest, I'm the best, I, am, I know what's best for me, and I'm going to be the one that ch- decides what needs to be changed or added to what I believe. Uh, when we have that kind of rigidity, rigidity uh, it leads to having blinders on. All right? it, it, it gives us tunnel vision when we live like the Pharisee and we have that kind of narrow view and rigid view. If you have a strong conclusion about anything other than Jesus, he will mess with it. I promise you. All right? It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's your theology, your politics, all right? your, the way you organize your day, um, science, it, everything can change except for him. He is the, the, the unchanging entity in our life. And so if you are close-handed about anything other than Jesus, it, you're going to have blinders on. You're going to have tunnel vision. To follow Christ means to live open-handed. It means to hold on loosely to everything except for him and see what he does with it, how he forms you, how he reshapes you, we are clay. We are meant to be soft and moldable in the presence of Christ. And you're, you're a Pharisee, and I know I'm Pharisaical about stuff. Just ask me my opinion on war. I'll be happy to share my opinion on that. And it's very rigid, and it's very stubborn. But I'm, I, I, and there's all types of beliefs that I've formed. All right? I believe you should have coffee every morning, and people who don't drink it are weird. All right? I, I hold that pretty tightly. I don't know how you survive without it. Um, but we have all these, these things that we hold on to, and Jesus can form and change and shift our paradigm when we are willing to sit and engage with him and listen, um, symbolically share a meal with him, because when we share a meal with people, barriers start to come down. The more wine you drink, the more receptive you're going to be to the conversation that you're having. Uh, it's just, you know, natural law. So think about that. Think outside of Jesus personalize this what are you most sure of right now what is like i know this is correct and you know maybe it's your politics maybe it's something else i know this and it's unchanging what is that 
because that might be the thing that Christ is telling you to kind of open your hand and see what he might do with what you're clinging to because that's the kind of king he is. He's the kind of king that will sit at a dinner table with you and, and bring up the most close-handed subject and say, are you sure about that? He likes to ask questions. He does that a lot throughout the New Testament. He gives more questions than answers. And he's the kind of king that will tell you a story that will blow up your paradigm like he did with the, the Pharisee. He'll tell some sort of like little story that'll just completely kind of stop you in your tracks like, whoa, I never thought of it like that. That's how he rolls when we live uh, like a Pharisee. And I can relate to that. Then there's the sinful woman. Upon first glance, it's hard to understand her level of desperation. All right, we, we don't have a ton of context. We just read like 12 verses here. So just a little bit of context about what this woman, who she is and, and what she's like. Most likely a prostitute. All right, when that phrase sinful woman was, was given, uh, it typically meant prostitute. So it's most likely a prostitute that heard about Jesus and, and desperately came running in to engage with him. Um, letting her hair down in front of the Pharisee and in front of Jesus is a culturally immodest act. All right, it's a major social faux pas that she, she had when she let her hair down. And, and then the fact that she was using it to rub Jesus' feet, which were covered in dirt and animal feces, um, may, like a very socially awkward situation. All right, this level of complete transparency and desperation. Um, she, she violated all types of etiquette. Um, the, if you're a Pharisee, imagine being in a situation where someone violates the social etiquette that you subscribe to. All right, it's going to make you maybe angry, judgmental, all right, a little arrogant if someone breaks that etiquette. That's probably what the Pharisee was thinking. We see some, him thinking these thoughts as he's sitting there. She's the kind of person that you would feel embarrassed for. You ever feel embarrassed for someone? That's, that's her in this situation when you're witnessing or you're included in this interaction. The perfume she had was common to Jewish women. It was so sacred and so valuable to them. They would wear it around their neck. They were allowed, they were, it was thought of as part of them. And they were allowed to wear that on the Sabbath. So this was um, symbolically a, a part of her, a very cherished, like this, of the things that I own, this is the best. That's the perfume she's, she's got, the, you know, the alabaster jar of perfumed oil that she has hanging around her neck. And so her circumstances um, and this act of desperation she follows it with is an act of simple but powerful contrition and humbleness. She is literally and figuratively pouring herself out at the feet of Christ. All right, she's, she's using her tears to wash his feet. She's using her hair. She's pouring out the most valuable part of her onto his feet. It's like complete emptying of oneself at the feet of Christ. And I can relate to that. I, I can be there. Spiritually, emotionally, and physically emptying ourselves at the feet of the king. And this is where the king meets her in that, in that low moment of embarrassment of potential you know people shaming her like the pharisee uh, of you know complete humbleness and desperation so maybe you're there and if you're waiting if you are there if you feel like your life is like that right now and you're you're waiting like when is god going to respond to this he will all right notice in this story he doesn't immediately respond to the woman all right, he's reclined at the dinner table. So in, in that culture, you didn't sit in chairs, you laid down. The, 
table was lower, and his feet would, went, would go out to the side. So as she's washing his feet and pouring perfume on his feet, he's having this conversation with the Pharisee. As the Pharisee's like watching what's going on, like, uh, what's happening here? And you're having like a normal conversation. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to point out the inspiration of what's going on. All right? He points out her story is part of something bigger than herself. It's part of something beautiful. So he, she, she's sitting there doing that, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisee about this woman's story. And now millions, billions of people have read this story over the last uh, you know, a couple thousand years. This woman's story is an inspiration. God will use your story like that. He will point people's attention to you. And you may not even realize it's happening. You ever have that where you say something or do something and then like later on someone points out like, that really meant a lot to me. Or, man, that really inspired me. And you're like, huh? You're completely oblivious? Like, I don't even remember saying that. That that's what Jesus is doing right now. He's pointing out the inspiration of this act of this woman being so transparent when you get so humble and so desperate for the love of Christ. He's like, this is good. And he's pointing it out to the Pharisee. So he waits to respond to her and then he forgives her. Emphasizing the freedom of forgiveness with one symbolic story, that parable. And then uh, there's a, a great translation uh, of the Bible called The Message by Eugene Peterson. And you're in it, he quotes one of the Beatitudes, which are in Matthew 5. He said, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Because that's where Jesus is going to meet you. That's where you feel like you're at. Be ready and be open to hearing from God because it's going to happen. And maybe you're this close to that. Maybe you're like hanging on by a thread to, you know, most of your circumstances are terrible right now and you're desperate in a lot of different areas, but you're clinging to a few different strings of hope and pride. Uh, Maybe you're clinging to the, you know, that symbolic alabaster jar that you have hanging around your neck like I'll give everything but I'm holding on to this all right that's where we need to pour it out and to let go of it or maybe you know maybe lay down that last act of pride that's blocking your ability to hear from Jesus Christ so what do you need to pour out and leave behind what's the what, what are you clinging to What's that last shred I know what mine is I'm not going to say it out loud, but I know what mine is. I know what I'm clinging to. And and ego and pride are involved in mine. Typically, that's that's what's going to block it. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. It is the the, the wall between being the sinful woman and and hearing from Jesus. Put the wall down and see what the king is going to have to say to you. And then there's Jesus. Oh, my gosh. I love his, I love his, uh, his anthropology. He's an anthropologist. Is that right? The study of humanity? I don't have that in my notes. Can someone give me a nod or a shake? Like, is that correct? Yes? All right, thank you. I was trying to think, is that a store or is that a uh, philosophy? <laughs> it's both. It's both. We're going to go with the philosophy or, you know, whatever that's called, not the store. So as an anthropologist, he's incredible. He's brilliant, and we have the opportunity to be like him. All right, the first thing I notice about this story, are you a forgiver? Are you generous with forgiveness? All right, with with a completely eliminating the ability to have a grudge or hatred or, you know, or to despise someone else because of something they did. The woman does not ask for forgiveness. All right? 
Because Christians don't believe in conditional love. We don't believe someone has to ask for forgiveness to receive it. We just give it. All right? Unconditional love. It is one of those qualities that is completely unique to Christ. This ability to forgive, even when someone may not ask for it or doesn't want to be forgiven. I mean, he's just an amazing forgiver of people. Jesus sees she needs it, and he does it. Forgiveness is a really powerful bridge builder between people and an incredible antidote to grudges and hate. If you are dealing with any semblance of disliking someone or holding a grudge against someone or hating someone, forgiveness. That is the the water that will put out the fire. Forgiveness. His, His level of forgiveness was epic, and we have that same ability. The second thing I notice about this um, is that Jesus is unoffendable. It's not even possible to offend Jesus. The woman and the Pharisee each broke multiple cultural laws in this story. Jesus points them out. He's like, hey, you didn't wash my feet when I came in. You didn't greet me with a kiss, which would essentially be like, in our culture, not greeting someone with a handshake. Like, they, they extend their hand, and you're just like, what's that? You know, you just kind of stare at them. That's essentially what the, the Pharisee did to Jesus. He didn't shake his hand when he entered his home. All right? He's like, you didn't, pour, you didn't anoint my head with oil. I'm all sweaty and dirty and nasty. And you didn't give me anything to, like, smell better, which is another normal, common act of, of tradition in this culture. And then the woman's breaking all kinds of... I mean, we've already talked about that. So there's, there's just, like, pot, like, an enormous amount of possibilities that Jesus could point out and be like, that offends me. That makes me unhappy. You should have known better. He points him out, but there's absolutely no anger or offense to it. The Pharisee isn't a bad guy. The woman is not the bad guy in this story. There's incredible power in refusing to be offended by people. You would experience incredible freedom by losing the habit of offense, and your life would be radically good news to other people. Because if you're offendable... Even a, a tiny bit, there's a subsection of people in your life that are walking on eggshells around you because they don't want to offend you. They don't want to upset you. And we have the ability through Christ to be unoffendable in a culture that, oh my gosh, our cultural level of that offends me is at an all-time high. It's, it's shocking how overly sensitive and arrogant people are when it comes to being offended, I don't understand, I honestly, I don't understand it. I'm like, this is, the, the, the gospel of, of offense of American culture creates barriers everywhere. I mean, it just throws up walls between people. And we have the opportunity to be like Jesus of like, I'm going to be unoffendable and it's just going to take bricks out of these walls that people build between each other. People, if you're unoffendable, people will feel completely safe around you. In a culture where really no one feels safe, socially, politically, I mean, it's just, you know, no one really feels safe. And we have an incredible opportunity to be like Jesus sitting at this table of, you can't offend me. You can say anything to me. You can do anything to me. And Jesus is like, you can take my life and on the cross that you're killing me on, I will tell God not to hold it against you. Unoffendable. It's amazing quality of Jesus. And then... He shares the dinner table with people, often. If you look at the book of Luke, he is either leaving 
going to or sitting at a meal with others. So much so that in Luke, people accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. They're like, this dude, all he does is eat and drink. That's all he does. That's what he's, he's doing the entire time. And Luke is eating with people at a table. If you want to make an enemy a friend, share a meal with him. Give him some wine or some craft beer or whatever you're into. Uh, whatever, whatever gets the, the conversation going. You're going to have a hard time being an enemy with someone if you share a meal with them. Have dinner and drinks with them. Communion might be the most powerful in combination with forgiveness and being unoffendable. It might be the most powerful uh, tool to bring down relational barriers. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. He's just like, okay, I am going to like take a, ha- a sledgehammer to every barrier in this room. And he just obliterates all the walls in such a beautiful, inviting fashion, both for the Pharisee and the sinful woman because he's sitting at a table with them. It's a method that Jesus used constantly. Now, don't get me wrong. I love reheated leftovers at 10 p.m. with Netflix on. All right, I love that meal. All right, who doesn't? Especially if you're an introvert. You're like, that sounds like heaven to me. All right, just alone, watching some, you know, my favorite show, whatever I'm binge watching, and I'm eating some food. Um, that's fine, but there's 21 meals in a week, all right? Share one with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Share another with someone who's your brother and sister in Christ. You'll be amazed at, at what kind of wheels that sets in motion to share a meal with some people. It's such a simple and, but miraculous act of connection, and so few of us take advantage of it. So I want to give you a real-life example of the power of communion, because you hear we talk about it all the time in Restore Church. So I'm going to play a little audio clip from this podcast I listened to. It's called Invisibilia, and the title of the podcast is called Flip the Script to this. And uh, it's about a four-minute story. And so here in a second, we'll crank up the volume, and you guys can listen to this. I just want you to listen to the power of a shared meal and what happens when we act on it. Washington, D.C. on a warm summer night. There were eight friends gathered around a backyard dinner table. They were toasting family and friendship, and everybody was having a good time. Kind of one of those great evenings. Lots of awesome food and French wine. and It was, it was like a magical night. That's Michael Rabdo. He was there with his wife and his 14-year-old daughter, Kyber. And he says it was getting late, maybe around 10 p.m., when it happened. I was standing beside my wife and I just saw this arm with a long barrel gun come between us. It was as if in slow motion, this hand, and then it just got really quiet. The hand belonged to a man, medium height, in clean, high-end sweats. He raised the gun and held it first to the head of Michael's friend, Christina, and then to the head of Michael's wife. Then he said, Give me your money. That's Kyber, Michael's daughter. Kept repeating, Give me your money. I'm going to start effing shooting. And um, we believed him. But there was a problem. No one had any money. So they started talking, grasping for some way to dissuade the man. They started with guilt. What would your mother... What would your mother think of you? And he said something like, I don't have an effing mother. Michael remembers thinking... This is headed towards a very bad end. Someone was going to get hurt. But then, one of the women at the table, this woman Christina, pipes up. 
She has an offer for the man. Said, you know, we're here celebrating. Why don't you have a glass of wine? It was like a switch. He could feel the difference. All of a sudden, Michael says, the look on the man's face changed. And he tasted the wine and just said, damn, that's, that's a really good glass of wine. We had some cheese there, too. And so he, he reached down for the cheese, and then um, he put the gun in his pocket. The man drank his wine, ate his cheese, and then he said something that no one expected. I think I've come to the wrong place. And we were all like, hey, I understand. For a moment, they all sat there together the stars overhead twinkling, the sound of chirping insects in the night air. And then he said something just so strange. He just said, can I get a hug? My wife hugged him and, and our friend hugged him. Then he said, can we have a group hug? And so everyone got up and formed a circle around the man. I can't tell you how strange that was, but we all did come around him and hug him and um, he said he was sorry and he t- walked out with a glass of wine out the gate. Later that evening, after everything had calmed down, they would find the glass neatly placed on the sidewalk by their alley. Not thrown, not carelessly discarded, placed. But that was later. At the time, all they could think to do was run into the house and cry in gratitude. It was like, this was like a miracle. It was like a miracle. So that's my uh, answer to someone, when someone asked me, like, if someone ever broke into your home, what would you do? I'd be like, I'd get out wine and cheese and everything would be okay. They stumbled upon, that was not intentional. Did you notice that? They stumbled upon communion. In our theology, we're very intentional with communion. We know, we already know, we are aware of the power. And that's kind of, that, that's an, just one example of what happens when you choose to share a meal. When you look at Jesus, you're like, dang, that guy was, he, he had everybody to a dinner table. And miracles would happen. It's it miraculous what happens when you share a table with people. So in conclusion, um, these three people that are involved in this story, we can be each of them in different parts of every day, every week, every month. Um, if you're a Pharisee, acknowledge and acknowledge that you need to be more open-handed. What is it? What, what do you need to be more open-handed with? More open-handed with? Where does the, the the blinders need to go off, and you be be more moldable to what Christ may have to say to you? If you're the sinful woman, um, wait, because God will speak to you. It will happen. It may not be when you want it to happen, but he is listening and acknowledging and present in your suffering. He's there with you. And if you want to be like Jesus, an incredible forgiver of others, completely void of offense or pride, and have this miraculous ability to build bridges and destroy relational barriers, you can. You have that ability. And there's, um, you know... There's one act that comes to mind that um, acknowledges 
all of this stuff happening. It's, it's both spiritual, physical, and symbolic, and it's the act of baptism by immersion. Right? It's something that uh, we're having a baptism celebration in a couple weeks at our new space, and what that is, it's one of the sacred parts of the Christian journey of acknowledging spiritually and physically and symbolically your desire to be moldable by, to Christ, to empty yourself and be washed of sin, and to be buried and then risen again as, as Christ was, as a new follower of him. It's something, baptism is something that Jesus did. It's something he taught all of his disciples to do. And when you look at the church of Acts throughout the New Testament, every time someone chose to follow him, they were baptized. And so that, if that's something that maybe when I bring up that word, it's kind of like weird or sort of sparks some fear or some questions, but it is such a beautiful illustration. Uh, it, it's one of the few uh, decisions we have as Christians that's public and that everybody can see. It's like a miracle you can see. That's very rare. Like, whoa, I'm witnessing this. And, and if it's you getting baptized, you're, you're, it's a very physical act of faith to be baptized. And so if that's something that, as I say that, that is something you think you're considering or have questions about, lean into that. All right? uh, write it on your connection card and one of our pastors will contact you or grab me afterwards today and I'd love to talk to you about that. But that's one major uh, decision to consider is baptism. And if you've already made that decision and you're wondering, what's my next step on the journey with Christ? You know, are you the Pharisee, the woman, or like Christ, or, or struggling, or, or kind of like intention in all those different areas? Lean into that with prayer and lean into that with Christian community. Uh, so what I mean by Christian community is if your only involvement in a Christian community is on a Sunday morning, that's not community. If you noticed, I'm doing all the talking right now. This is not a communal conversation. Uh, and community, like where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am also. And you think like the sinful woman and the Pharisee and Jesus, um, God is spread through conversation and community and communion with other Christians. And so make that a rhythmic part of your life. And that could look like, some, it could look like a lot of different things. It could like, look like you getting involved with missional community, which is like our expression of of Acts 2, a Christian community where we break bread together, we pray, we have fun together, we get to know each other. Uh, you know, maybe it's through a Bible study with some friends or coffee with a couple of people you deeply trust, some brother or sister that, in Christ that you know is going to speak wisdom into your life. I don't know what it is, um, but it is a step further into the journey. And then prayer. Um, either, you know, I'll pray for you today. If you want me to pray for you, I'd love to pray for you today. Uh, but be praying and have people praying for you. So that, the, you know, that is, uh, prayer is the primary means for how God shapes us. It is a very powerful gift that he's given us. So keep those, those in mind and personalize this story. You know, this story is continuing to be told. This is an incredibly relevant story that we just read today. What's, Jesus, what's God saying to you in the midst of that? And what are you going to do about it? Let's pray.